Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. How's that? A little better. Uh, the the, the uh, words for the, from the scripture are uh, printed in the bulletin uh, for you wherever you are um, so that we can uh, all be on the same page, literally um, and figuratively. We're going to be reading this section out of John 4, well, an encounter with Christ, um, Christ's encounter with us, and what we learn through this encounter. And last week we looked at this, this powerful, uh, this particular encounter that Jesus has with uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, is the longest single conversation Jesus has with an individual. And there's, there's, a, there's powerful import, there's powerful impact for, with what we discovered through this. And last week we saw that through this, Jesus shows us that he's crossing, um, he's crossing immense and varied barriers in order to get to us with his love. Crossing gender barriers, crossing racial and cultural barriers, crossing moral barriers, crossing social barriers, even crossing barriers of psychology and of ways that I'm putting up a barrier to keep Christ from getting to me. And I do this unconsciously as well as consciously. And Jesus is the barrier crosser, and he leads his people to become crossers of barriers in our world today to bring the grace, the love, the beauty of Christ to us. Today we're going to look a little bit about how he, uh, in this encounter, he shows us not only that he crosses the barriers to get to us, but why does he cross the barriers to get to us? It is to quench the, the undying thirst we have and uh, to show us that. So we're going to look, at, if you will, at John chapter 4, and I'm going to read uh, just a few paragraphs in. I'm not going to read the entire section that you have printed here. Um, we'll be using this as the weeks progress, but uh, today, starting in verse 1 and down a few paragraphs. So follow along if you can. John 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in truth, spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Lord, our, our tendency is to, is to put up walls, is to create barriers. Our tendency uh, is to avoid you. That's, that's our allergic nature, our allergic hearts to you. And that translates, that, that ripples out into our lives. We tend to avoid uh, others and put up barriers in our relationships and in our world. And Lord, I pray that you would break through those barriers, starting first with us in our hearts, and then lead us to... to care for and break through the barriers of our world to care and to love and to bring hope in Christ. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen. You know, I was thinking about this week. Um, in just one week, I think we, I think we, uh, my family and I, we had, we were able to spend, my family was able, was able to spend a few days at the beach and I was able to join them for a day or two and then, uh, and we had, we had uh, gotten some take-out take food at a restaurant in town supporting the local economy. And, we had, and we'd done a number of experiences um, here and there with family that are in from out of town. And so all of these things, I, I remember, you know, e- each time we had, you know, each time we had uh, uh, something like that, for instance, um, uh, you know, when I got back from vacation... Um, from those days, a couple of people that I ran into, a couple of you I ran into, so how was it? And I go, well, it's, I mean, it's good enough, but it, was, it feels a little truncated. Wasn't what I was, wasn't what I had planned. And then, you know, when we got the food from the takeout, and I'd order a particular thing, and, and, you know, Becky said, well, how was that thing that you ordered? I go, well, it, w- it, wasn't, it wasn't as good as I'd hoped it had been. Didn't quite have the taste. You know, and then when we had a couple of experiences, my kids would say, you know, hey, Dad, what'd you think of that? And I go, it was okay. I mean, you know, it's not as good as it used to be. And I'm thinking each of those experiences, these were in just one week. Each of those experiences, each of those responses reflects that it was satisfying, but not completely satisfying. That it did, that it, that it was a truncated sort of um, um, unquenching uh, element to, to my life. And I feel like it, that my responses and my, my interactions with those things is no different than everyone else's, and that we all struggle with this sense. I mean, you, you, ever, go to the, you ever go to the refrigerator? Um, it, it, usually this happens, you know, sort of mid-evening, you know, 8 o'clock, 8.15, and you go to the refrigerator, you're looking for something to eat, and you go, oh, there's some grapes in there, but that's not what I want, and then some leftover hamburger. Not, I don't know if I want that. That's not, you know, get some 
chips or pretzels. Or, and you eat them, and you sat, you know, but you're not, it doesn't quite hit the spot. That unquenchable, that unsatisfied hunger, that sense. Each of us struggles with this sort of thing. Um, that, uh, and we discover in those moments, and there's nothing wrong with sort of uh, acknowledging those ideas, but it really reflects on the condition of the human soul is that we don't ever get a full sense that the things of this earth, the things of this world, cannot adequately satisfy the thirst of our soul, of our hearts. Whether it's, a, whether it's a, an activity, whether it's a meal, whether it's a, whether it's a vacation, whether it's a person. Um, in the life of this particular Samaritan woman, uh, what we discovered is that she was using, she was using people to satisfy the inner craving, to satisfy an inner longing that she was unaware of. There's a, I was, I was doing some research, um, reading this week, and I, and I came across these these phrases. I can't live without it. I can't stop thinking about it. It's taken over my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. I can't stop thinking about it. I feel like I'm nothing without it. As long as I have it, I know I can handle anything. It's the first thing I think about in the morning and the last thing I think about at night. I've lost family and friends and jobs and opportunities all because of it, but I don't care. I would do whatever it takes to have it. It's like I'm living in hell without it. These phrases are a list of phrases that come out of group discussions at rehab centers. Rehab centers based on various levels of addiction. This, and, 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 and lest we get too uh, superior uh, in our sense of understanding these phrases, I've heard these phrases in counseling sessions in my office. I've heard these phrases expressed in living rooms in your homes. Each of us has some level, some, some capacity to want to suck life out of something so desperately and to get so caught up in finding life in that thing that we, that we, uh, that we can't live without it, that we've become so accustomed to it in whatever it is. And the thing about, the thing about what we discover in this instance in the, in the life of the Samaritan woman is that Jesus sees our unquenchable thirst and he takes the initiative, he takes the initiative to expose it. He exposes the need in order to love us and he loves us in order to quench our thirst. Look at those things. He takes the initiative. The thing that strikes me about the way that John, John wrote the gospel here, he says, if you look at verse 4 of, of, chapter, of chapter 4, verse 4, he says, now he had to go through Samaria. The subtlety of that, and the thing, one of the things you have to keep in mind uh, when you read the Scriptures is they weren't, the, the primary audience for all of Scripture is not you and me. We're centuries past the, the primary authors. In this instance, the primary authors was a Jewish nation in the time of Christ right around Judea and Samaria. That's who John's writing for. He's writing for people in his local region. And, and when he writes, now he had to go through Samaria, he's not writing that in order, like for you and me, we think it's a, direction, we think it's a directional phrase. We think it's something geographic. 
Jesus had to go through, you know, he had to go through Samaria. Well, how do you get from here to Spring Grove? Well, or how do you get here from here to York? Well, I had to go through Spring Grove to get to York. Or how did you get, you know, how to get to Chambersburg? Well, I had to go through Gettysburg to get to Chambersburg. That's what you think this means. But for any self-respecting Jew living in Galilee, living in Judea, if you're going to go from Judea to Galilee, you don't have to go through the place where there are people that you hate. You, if I go to Chambersburg, do I have to go through Gettysburg? To get to, to, get to York, do I have to go through Spring Grove? No. I can, go, I can go a lot of different ways. And any self-respecting Jew would have had several different ways to get from Judea to Galilee without having to go through stinking Samaria. What John is telling us is, and the thing that was interesting to the Jews back in the day when this was written, he wasn't giving them a directional expression. He was saying Jesus could have gone any particular way to get around Samaria like any other Jew would have, but he had to go through Samaria as if to say, I have to go through Samaria because I'm meeting someone in Samaria. And that's, in fact, what was going on, and we discover that. And he shows up at a well, middle of the day, middle of the day when no one's supposed to be there, middle of the day when no one was expected to be there. As a matter of fact, the, you know, the only person, you know, she knew no one was, she knew no one else was going to be there, and she expected no one else to be there. She didn't have an appointment with anybody there because her desire was to be there when no one else was there, and suddenly, Jesus is there. Jesus is there to meet her and to show her something she doesn't know about herself. Something she's blind to. Something she had that was just a way of life. Now, more than likely, she's been, you know, we, we don't know any more than what Jesus is describing about her situation. And he, and he, exposes, he exposes in this interaction, using the water, give me, you know, get, me a, get me some water. And she says, well, how can you do this? I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. That doesn't make sense. We're not supposed to have any interaction. Why are you, you know, you're going you're gonna to ask me for water? And Jesus says, well, if you, if you knew who you're talking to, you'd be asking me rather than me asking you for water. And he gives her a hope that if you drink the water I can provide for you, then you'll never thirst again. And she's like, well, if that means I'd never thirst again, I won't have to come back here. Give me some of that water. If I don't have to come back and draw water from here, if I don't have to expose myself to the cultural, uh, to the cultural avoidance, if I don't have to expose myself to the ridicule of whatever it was, the reason that she was there alone was because to, to not have to live through the, the lives of the, and the ridicule and the, and the humiliation of those interactions with the other people of her community that were there in the morning, she was there at noon when no one else would ever think to come at the highest heat of the day. And she says, well, give me what you, give me what you have and, and here's the thing. Jesus is offering her something far grander, far more expansive, far more earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting than simply water so that she doesn't thirst again. And what's her first response when she's, exp when she, when she's exposed to what Jesus is offering? It's, and her first response is the same response that you and I have when, we're, when we first come in contact with who Jesus is and what he offers us with his grace. What's her first response? Give me that water so I don't have to come back here. 
Give me that water so I can use it. How can I use Jesus for my benefit? How can, I, how can I use him so that I can get what I want? What I want is I don't want to have to come back here. What I want is I don't have to keep living through the ridicule. What I want is to feel better about my experience, and so I'm going to use Jesus for my benefit. And Jesus, Jesus says, well, okay, let's keep talking. You haven't quite got the point yet. Let me, let's keep going a little deeper. Um, bring, go, go get the people in your life. Go get your husband and come back and we'll chat. We'll, we'll talk about it. And Jesus knew full well. He was, he was leading her to himself through that, down the path. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. Again, she's obfuscating. She's being unclear and complicated. She's, she's creating barriers. I don't have a husband. She could have said, she could have ta- talked a little bit more about the details. She could have said, well, I, you know, the, the man I'm living with isn't a husband. She could have been more vulnerable and more sort of transparent, but she wasn't. She's, and Jesus says, well, that's right. You don't, have a hus- you, the, you don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five. You've had five. Now, we don't know, unless before you judge too quickly, we don't know why she had five husbands. In the ancient Near East, it could be that five men left her. It could have been that three of them died. It could have been any number of reasons. It it may not have been that she was just willing to be with any man in the community. We don't know. So we don't judge that perspective. But what we do discover is that one after the other in in more and more relationships, she had gotten used to a plan. She had gotten used to a process. and And some of this process was instilled through the culture is that women had virtually no hope, no life, no opportunity, no survival unless they had a relationship with a man in this ancient Near Eastern culture. And that was the system that she was a part of. And so there's a sense where if these men were all rejecting her, if these men over her life were all dying and leaving her destitute and without anything, the system itself was putting her in this place to the point where she's got to quench her thirst, her need for security, for survival, for hope, for opportunity in these relationships. And Jesus is exposing that. Jesus is exposing that and saying, I see you. I see you. I see you. One man after another. One experience after another. So she's probably an, an older, you know, not, not a young woman. I don't know how old, but probably not a, certainly not a young, young woman. But she had, she had a maturity that she was trying to survive. She's trying to get by. She's trying to make a life for herself and and. And in, in, her, in her reliance, she had gotten used to a pattern of quenching the thirst, the quenching the thirst for security, quenching the thirst for value. I'm nothing unless I'm in a relationship. I'm nothing unless someone loves me. Getting back to, the, getting back to those quotes I, that, that I mentioned earlier, I can't live without it him. I can't stop thinking about him. He's taken over my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. He's the first thing I think about. Relationships, don't we use people that way? Don't we use people to fill up a sense of me? My wife, my wife and I were having a conversation a number of weeks ago 
where she was saying that, so, that she, was, she was helping me to see. She exposed some of my, my own inner cravings. You know, one evening we were talking. She says, she says, I know you're not trying to manipulate me to say something to you or to, or to, or to say a particular phrase that's going to help you out of your struggle. But sometimes when you say things, I think you're trying to get me to save you from a particular thing or from a particular idea or a particular attitude. Or the, and I know that you're not trying to manipulate me, but I feel like you're trying to use, say things to get me to change, to save you from the strife and from the darkness, from the pain, from the suffering, whatever it is. And, I, and she was actually, she was exactly right. Do you, ever, do you ever say things hoping that someone will say the other thing? Do you ever, in a relationship with someone, whether it's your kids, whether it's your boss, whether it's your lover, whoever it is, that you, that you say, you know, I love you, you say, right? I love you. There's a, there's a, there's a I forget, I should have looked this up this week. There's a famous movie or, or a show, maybe some of you know this, where the relationship is kind of a sitcom, and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the, fem- the woman in the scene says, I love you, and the, and the man says, thank you. Is that, the, is that the appropriate response for I love you? Because when you say I love you, what are you hoping the other person's going to say? I love you back. Man, you're good looking. There's a sense where even the, that, we're, that we're in these, uh, in these interactions, even the words I'm using, even the phrases that I'm offering, even the love that I'm giving is an attempt to try to get something for me in the process. And then in that regard, I'm not really loving. I'm simply, uh, well, I'm not, I'm loving, but I'm loving me. So I've said these words, I love you, but it's really, if you don't say I love you, I'm not going to feel good about this situation. And it, and it exposes Jesus. Jesus is exposing. He, he's cutting into her life and, and, and showing her something about the way that she lives and the way that we all live. Exposing us to the, to the way we try to quench our thirst through people. And we'd never see it otherwise. We'd never see it. She didn't see it all the years she's been living through six different relationships and probably many more. The pattern of her life was to, to, go, to try to use people to satisfy the cravings and the quenchings of her own experience. This is the pattern. And if, and if Jesus doesn't step in, if Jesus doesn't take the initiative to go through Samaria to see her need, to, sh- to not be put off by whatever immorality, and, and certainly to try to find a need, to fill a need apart from Jesus, is, is sin. I mean, it, you know, it, it is a... To try to answer my needs, to satisfy my longings in any other way than through Christ is sinful, is, re- is rebellious and betraying to Christ. And so in this regard, all of this is sinful, and yet Jesus looks beyond the sin to the need. He looks beyond the, he looks beyond the offense to the, to the craving. He's looking and exposing her thirst, not to, not to condemn her for it, but to show her a need that he can fill, to quench it in some respects. And he connects it. Here's the interesting thing. He connects it. He says that you're he says that your thirst, your cravings, are related to your worship. What you worship, because they, they go right into a worship conversation soon after, because she's like, and again, her, it's her desire. She, what she's trying to do is put up another religious wall. You've, you've, you've penetrated to the, to the core of my, of my longings here. Uh, now we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about my, my need. You're going to talk about my question. Wait a minute. Let's talk about where do you go to church? You, you probably go to church down in Jerusalem because you're a Jew. 
I go to church up here in Samaria. That's where we worship. And we don't see things eye to eye and, you know, understand what kind of church that is. And Jesus says, you want to talk about church? Let's talk about church. It's good you, at, it's good you go right to church. It's a, good, it's a good segue from addiction, from, from satisfying your cravings, from quenching your thirst. It's a good connection between thirst and worship because what you worship exposes what you crave, exposes what you love, what you what exposes your addiction. And, and we worship a lot of different things. I can tell, I can usually tell what people worship by the way they, by the way they, um, by the decor in their home. Same way. I once, uh, when I, when I, when I pastored, when I was part of one of the pastors of a church in Baltimore, I went to a home of a, of a, of a family that, that, uh, that uh, had invited me over. We, I was just getting to know them. And as soon as I walked into the house, the door that I had opened, the front door that I had opened, um, and as it opened, it sweeped a path of children's toys away as they opened it. And as I came in, the whole room was covered with children's toys and the walls the, 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 you know, the, uh, around the room were little, were little stations of toys. You know, like the little tykes carpenter set and the little tykes kitchen and then a stack for books and so forth. And, and, and it continued into the dining room. Um, and that was the main floor. And that's fine. If that's your house, that's great. But it told me something about the family that very central to who they were, that, that to their essential of, to their lives, they were captivated, organized, and arranged, cycling and circling, satelliting around children. Uh, and although I love children, some of mine are here today, um, they cannot quench the thirst. They... They cannot, like any, uh, any human being, they cannot salve the inner need. Uh, one theologian put it this way, if you don't feed on Christ, you will feed on each other. It is a, it is a terrible, terrible thing to ask another human being to give you what only Jesus can give you. It is a terrible terrible thing. And many of us are asking the people in our lives, the relationship that we have, our bosses, our friends, our neighbors, our spouses, our children, to give us what only Jesus can give us. And he says, I will give you life. That will, I will give you water. I will quench your thirst that it will well up in you a spring of life. To put the burden, to put the burden of infinite goodness and infinite love and infinite grace on another person to expect your spouse, your children, your, your, your relationships to salve that inner wound is terrible. And terrible not for them, certainly not for them, but terrible for you. Because that well can't, can't, generate enough life. It can't generate enough hope. It can't generate enough satisfaction. And Jesus is exposing that. He's exposing that. He says, you're trying to find something in these people, and they're not, they can't give it to you, but there is one. She says, where do you go to church? 
It's about worship. She says, yep, it's about what you're worshiping. And Jesus says, it's not about where you worship. It's not about how you worship. It's about who you worship. She says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll make it all clear. He says, I'm here, and I am making it clear. And she runs off, leaving everything she had. Runs off. Runs off to the town that had rejected her and that she was trying to avoid. The town that she was, the people that she was trying to avoid by being there at noon, she runs off to talk to. What would lead her to that place? And, when she, and then the part we didn't read in there, which, uh, which we'll get to as we go um, uh, in the week, in next week a little bit, she says in verse 20, uh, verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The thing I love about that, that expression is she's going to the town of people that she was trying to avoid, and she was telling them, Jesus, this man told me everything I ever knew, everything I ever was, everything I ever did. He exposed, what she's telling them is, he exposed my life and my need, and I'm and I kind of think he might be the Christ. But I love her uncertainty. Even in her uncertainty, she had, she had a little bit of knowledge of Jesus, and it led her to want to love other people. A little bit of knowledge. Not even a complete knowledge. A little bit of knowledge. A little bit of exposure. A little bit of experience with Jesus. She, he quenched a little bit of her thirst, and, it, and by exposing it, by exposing the thirst, by showing her you're trying to get life out of a lifeless thing, But he did it because he wanted to love her, not to, not to judge her, not to, not to condemn her. Verse, verse uh, 10, he says, Jesus said, you know, or let me jump back a little bit. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that, asks, that you ask for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus Jesus is saying to her, you're marveling at the fact that I'm asking you for a drink. I'm not asking you for a drink because I'm thirsty. I'm asking for, you, I'm asking for a drink because you're thirsty. I'm not here because I'm tired and hungry and thirsty. I'm here because you're tired, you're hungry, and you're thirsty. And the reason we know that is because when he died on that thing, one of the things he said at the last minute was, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Because it wasn't about his own thirst. It was about your thirst. It was about our, my thirst. He doesn't want you and me to live in a condition of not having our thirst quenched. He, he loves us. He hasn't begun and established and continued a relationship with his people in order that we would go thirsty or hungry. He's not ushered us into a relationship in order that we, we might live truncated lives. He wants us to live lives of abundance. He wants us to live lives to the fullest. These are actual quotes from Jesus. I've come to give you life and that you might have life to the fullest, that you might have an abundant experience, that you might live the life of complete shalom. Shalom was that peaceful, quenched life 
Why do we keep, why are we so thirsty? Why are we so unquenchable? It all began in the Garden of Eden. From the very beginning, he says, as long as you, you know, the reason that we are unquenched is because we wanted to be gods rather than have a God. Rather than live in a, in a, in a, in a union with him, live in a, in a, in a supported, connected relationship with him where he is our provider and we are, his, we are his recipient, that he is the lover and we are the loved. If we were lived in that, but no, we wanted to be gods. We wanted to have something of our own. We wanted to be in control. And ever since that day, we have not been satisfied. We have not been able to quench our thirst. And Jesus sees that need and wants to love us to himself and to give us And to quench that thirst, he says in verse 14, everyone who drinks the water, this water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What he's saying is that if you trust me, if you give me your life, if you, get, if you let the relationship you have with me, if you, if you take me into yourself, I will give you you will become a spring rather than you will become the he said he's saying i'm going to turn you in turn you from a cup that can't be filled and more and more rea- in more true terms it's a black hole rather i'm each human being is a black hole it's a it's a it's a life-sucking vacuum where I'm trying to find life in every, in every aspect and I'm sucking it out of the world and life experiences and, and, and out of people and out of things and out of money. And what Jesus says, I've come to not, to not fill that in just the filling portion of it. I've come to transform you from a cup into a spring. A spring is, is a thing, you know, if, you, and if any of you have had springs in your, in your basement or you've been in, in communities that have a spring in your, in your, and the water table is very high, what that, you don't want a spring in your basement. You want, it's not good, at least not in basements. Springs are great otherwise because it's these places where the, where the water just sort of bubbles up and keeps bubbling up. Jesus says, that's what I want to do for you. I'm not just here to fill the cup of vacuum, of emptiness that is in you. Certainly that's the only only thing that will is me and my grace. But as I fill you, as as you take me into you, you, as you quench your thirst with me, you stop being a cup or a black hole. You start being a spring, a spring for yourself and a spring for other people. And so now the relationships that you're in aren't for you, they're for others. And so when I say I love you, it's not to get you to say I love you back. It's because I love you. And so you can say thank you. And I'm not wrecked by it. And I can now do my job with with passion and with, with strenuous effort not because it gives me a sense of value and worth and success and monetary security, because Jesus does that, but because the well of water, the well of life, the well of satisfaction, the well of worth and value and security that Jesus provides to me is welling up. And what am I going to do with it except give it away? (laughs) But when you're a cup, you only need to be filled. When you are a cup, 
All you want is to suck life. Jesus says, I've come to be for you the filling that now you can become a spring and fill other lives. Fill the culture with life. Fill up to eternal life. Eternal life that you'll always say. And he's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about being a source of ongoing life. And so when you enter relationships, when you enter circumstances, when you enter experiences, it is to give life, to, to offer life. And so now vacations and travel and people and money and, and meals and circumstances don't become something that's in me, but it's, it's a way for life to be given the eternal life that Jesus is welling up inside. And we stop being users. And we start being participants. Stop being evaluators of whatever it was I got. How was that meal? How was that vacation? How was that relationship? How was that experience? How was that time? How was that church? It, I stop being a user and an evaluator and I become a participant and a transformer a life giver in the midst of all of this because the life that I'm offering comes from within because Jesus is the life-giving water who took the initiative to expose that process in me. This blindness is not evident. It is not clear. And you, you probably need help to discover it in your own life in ways that you're using, in ways that you're addicted, and ways that these phrases that I, that I used earlier but from rehab are a reflection of your life. And you need friends and family and the Scriptures to help you to discover the ways that you're using people for your own life. But he exposes it not to condemn it, not to destroy us, but to love us and to quench us with such love and satisfaction. He went to great lengths to get this. He went to that great unquenchable thirst of hell for us, not so that we live truncated lives, but beautiful, ongoing life, springing lives, starting now. And it really, get, and it really gets good when he comes back. But it starts now. if the living water is welling up in your soul. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being the living water, for causing it to well up within us that we might then become springs of life to others in our lives. Give us this grace. Teach us to trust. Expose us for the sake of love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.